who is not familiar with INCOSI, INCOSI is the International Council on Systems Engineering. It's a not-for-profit uh, membership organization and it's involved in developing and disseminating um, interdisciplinary principles related to systems engineering. So, what is systems engineering? It focuses on ensuring the pieces work together to achieve the objectives of our own, according to the mission in the system engineering body of knowledge. <coughs> so it's an interdisciplinary approach and means to enable the realization of successful systems. Um, yeah, I guess most of us here understand systems engineering quite well. But if you want to, you can have a look at the Incozy website, www.incozy.org or incozy.org.za, South African Park. There is a new Incozy website, which is um, quite useful and user-friendly, um, upgraded uh, um, to make it much more interactive. So you're welcome to go and have a look there. The membership benefits, if you join Incozy, you have plenty of opportunities to network with uh, extremely large uh, uh, membership of people across the entire world. You can participate in Incozy events, such as uh, the chapter meeting we're having tonight, um, webinars that you can attend, you can participate in technical workshops, you also have access to an Incozy system engineering body of knowledge. Um, version 1.4 is available in wiki format. You have access to Incozy publications and products. And you, of course, as an engineer, you can earn CBD points for attending Incozy events. And it's also registered with EXA as a Category A volunteer organization, um, that for which you also get considerable benefits from. As <coughs> of the publications and products, there's an insight quarterly publication available, Assistant Engineering Quarterly Journal, Annual Proceedings uh, from Symposias and products from working groups that you can get from the, from the uh, web pages. And yeah, note that version 4.0 of the System Engineering Handbook is now available, which I think has a little bit improved on from the previous version, so it's becoming a much more powerful tool, I think, to use. And if you want to join, it's all for only 600 rand per year. Uh, as Paul always says that uh, you, um, if, you, if you're a member of Exile then, and you join in Cody, you get, I think it's 750 rand uh, discount. So it's actually a uh, net benefit to join it if you are a member of Exile. So it's been worth a while. So after you stay in the loop, you can become a member and join our mailing list. And you would get these invitations via email. You can also join the Encoji South Africa discussion group uh, where various uh, people with knowledge, knowledge in system engineering can ask questions, open questions, and uh, people are, can contribute answers to. You can also search and find that quite valuable information there. All the uh, presentations that we do during the chapter meetings are recorded by owner.fm. <coughs> doing that now, we will do it tonight, so that's also very beneficial. If you do miss a chapter meeting, you can always listen to it later or you can refer to it later afterwards. So then just some feedback on what has happened uh, over the past few weeks. The uh, 11th Incozy ESA conference uh, took place uh, at Victoria and I think it was about 230 members, 250 I think, that attended which was an increase from the previous year. So it's becoming much more popular. It's becoming a very professional event. So this is probably one of the big highlights. It certainly ranks as <coughs> one of the top conferences in the world, almost, I would say. And to report what had happened this time, it was, it was three days of quite intense information. There were six keynote plenaries, two paper tracks with about plus minus 26 papers, two tutorial tracks, um, two panel discussions. One of the new things I had was uh, GSOI, that's uh, an, an effort to try and get more um, young system engineers involved and 
active in the profession. One of the key theories <coughs> was about uh, uh, orchestrating chains with Richard Koch, which I think the members enjoyed very much because it was interesting in the one aspect to see uh, system, just as you fundamentals of system being applied just in a totally different context than you would normally be used to. And then of course as with tradition with the Incozies there's some good wine tasting again with matching foods mm -hmm. and yes, uh, networking which is, you see all your old friends so definitely recommend this uh, for those who want to do it next year. And then um, Can I say, we have the best paper award man with us. Do yes, it? yes. Mm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of bringing the trophy along. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it with wine. Fill it. Drink out of it. This diary is the 26th of November, then we will have our year in function. Uh, which we are very excited because we are going to have uh, Chantal Ilberry. Um, I don't know if you have heard about uh, the book Games as Foxes Play, or some of you may have heard of Clem Santer. It's all about predicting uh, the future, although they will never say this predicting, but yes, it's all about um, thinking strategically about uh, uh, the world and uh, where things are going. So, it should be very exciting and very interesting to, to listen to. Okay, so tonight uh, we um, have, or fortunate to have Robert Halligan from Australia with us. Um, Robert is an executive professional engineer and engineering practitioner, known international for his role in the practice and improvement of technology-based projects. He served as president of the Systems Engineering Society of Australia and on the board of INCOSI. He's uh, inaugural head of delegation of INCOSI to ISOIC on software and systems engineering. He has content in EIA IS632 and its success in the area of requirements quality, IEEE, in the area of functional analysis and in the various releases of ISO 15288. So he has considerable knowledge of the standards that we have to use as systems engineers. He has delivered systems engineering training to over 11,000 professionals. And I think many of the members here have attended some of those courses. And he's also the founder and CEO of Project Performance International. So Robert Alligan will be giving us an uh, overview of ISA. Let's get to welcome. Thank you very much. And uh, we just Need a few moments to change. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's, it's great to uh, see so many old friends here and uh, uh, hopefully also some new ones. And uh, uh, to be honest, two or three years ago, had somebody asked me to do a, a presentation on ISIC 15288, I would have politely declined <laughs> because it would have all been bad news, pretty much. Uh, today, uh, I'm very enthusiastic about giving a presentation on ISO IC 15288-2015, uh, issued, uh, released, uh, actually 15288, uh, it's ISO IEC IEEE actually, 15288, and it's actually not a new edition of an old standard, but it's actually officially a new standard, version one, uh, coinciding, it, it's released coinciding with the cancellation uh, of the old standard. And that's more than coincidental. There's uh, a little bit of uh, stuff that you've seen. We don't need to go into that anymore. What we're going to do is uh, have a look at uh, 15288, the new standard, but uh, contrast it with what it uh, overtakes. Uh, and, and it's very much a, a bad news, good news story. So uh, this is, a, 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 uh, you'd expect, a personal point of view on a lot of things, that, uh, but things that seem to be seriously important, uh, and uh, also a, a little bit of a glimpse into the future in the next five years of standards uh, that provide further opportunity for, uh, for, for moving forward, at least from my point of view. As a uh, sort of starting point, 
and, and I would n I've never said this publicly uh, until the new standard replaced this one, but, but 15288-2008 was a disaster. Uh, there, is no, there is no mincing of words. Uh, major, major problems. You, you see them listed there. Uh, then a miracle occurs process, uh, somehow miraculously uh, humans wanting outcomes, somehow through a miracle morphs into some sort of definition of elements of solution, bits of technology and other things, uh, with some sort of miracle. And that contrasts with what arguably is the best of the standards and the, the first of the serious systems engineering standards, which was, uh, was actually a draft mill standard, which is a bit surprising. Uh, mill standard uh, 15, uh, mill standard 499B, uh, which in its released uh, form uh, was an EIA 632, or IS, I should say, interim standard 632. Uh, and that was very strong in that area, but unfortunately that totally disappeared with 15288. Uh, the treating of architecture as a physical level, not a level of abstraction. The limiting of verification to only system verification. We'll have a look at all of these things in, in much more detail. Validation, similar story. The muddling up of the uh, distinction between the act of, say, pouring the concrete or bending the steel versus the act of designing uh, a production system or designing a maintenance system. Or, or it's more than designing, developing is the, is the right word. But those two are totally muddled up in 2008. Uh, an absence of concurrent engineering, and yet concurrent engineering. If you look at the evolution of engineering practice over the last 100 years, if you were to identify one thing that's most significant in that evolution, it would probably be the practice of concurrent engineering. It is of huge uh, importance and of huge magnitude of take-up of the practice, and yet not a shred of it in that standard. And then absence of a system lifecycle management process. The, the, uh, the 2008 standard is not too bad in the management area in general as far as managing development. But from then on, once, once something has been created, the life, rest of the life cycle is left to its own devices, which of course is, is not reality, it's not what happens in the real world, uh, and it's not something one would want to advocate. Uh, and then lastly, the explicit exclusion of the applicability of systems engineering to small and typically homogenous technology things, like purely software, uh, or purely mechanical, or you know, sort of purely, if anything is pure, um, normally electronic, that sort of thing, explicitly excluded from application of systems engineering. And, uh, and that is really strange. Uh, it's strange because reality, again, in the real world, uh, is enormous application of systems engineering to such products. Some of the most successful uh, in terms of social benefit uh, and commercial benefit applications have been of that nature, like heart pacemakers, for example. They're, they're on a scale of complexity, they're low, but systems engineering has been used with enormous success to make better uh, pacemakers, better in terms of medical outcomes, uh, but also in terms of commercial outcomes. So that's why I say that standard has been pretty much a disaster. Now, that's the bad news. The good news! Look at all the good stuff that's happened. Architecture in the new standard uh, is very clearly, very um, unambiguously uh, restored to its dictionary meaning and its meaning in, in injuring practice in, in the world of a level of abstraction of design. The, the concept of, well, in fact, if you look at definitions of architecture, the one dominant word is concept. And me, meaning architecture and then we implement whatever we move forward with to an executable level of detail, or an implementable level of detail. Uh, and, and that is now very clear. The language, in fact, is a little bit strange, but the meaning is totally unambiguous. So that's totally fixed. Uh, I'll, I'll comment more on V&V a little later, but simply to state that V&V is no longer just system V&V. It's requirements work product V&V. It's V&V of emails. Uh, any work product. Uh, and especially design, and then subsystems, and then system. And the same comments to validation. Uh, concurrent engineering is very well represented. It's as it should be. It's interwoven. 
into all of the other processes and, and it's done so uh, in, a, in a very um, logical, clear way. So that's a huge improvement also. Uh, and then there is no, not just is there no exclusion of the applicability of systems engineering to essentially homogenous technologies, but there are clear examples uh, that make the intent of the application to such things explicit. So large, complex, multi-technology systems through to small things is, is now within the scope of application uh, of, of the new standard. And when you add all those things together, that's huge. John? Will you elaborate on the definition of concurrent engineering? Yeah, let me do that. Um, I actually have a diagram on it later, but let's do it, no, let's do it right now. Uh, in fact, uh, John's question uh, raises an issue... Uh, not an issue, um, something I'd like to say, and that is please just raise anything as we go. Uh, if, if it seems appropriate, yeah, just raise it, we'll talk about it. So to uh, pick up on John's question, uh, concurrent engineering is one of these unfortunate terms where the words don't even come close to conveying what it's actually about. Sure, there's concurrency, but, you know, there are people working you know, engineering in Stellenbosch and people working in Cape Town at the same time, concurrent engineering. Well, that's not what it's talking about. What it is, is the concurrent, the um, collaborative, meaning the people doing engineering are collaborating, uh, and the balanced, now balanced means decisions being made that maximise value delivery next level up, you know, basically at the enterprise level. So it's the concurrent, collaborative and balanced uh, development of our system of interest, now whatever that is, it could be anything, it could be a computer, it could be a business system, it could be a a train or anything, and uh, one or more what are called enabling systems. And uh, this term enabling system means a system that makes possible some phase of the life cycle of a system of interest. So, for example, uh, a production system makes possible the, the production phase or an engineering system, which to varying degrees we're all involved in and parts of, uh, an engineering system makes possible the development phase of a life cycle of the thing to be engineered. A maintenance system makes possible the ongoing useful, useful operations phase. So that, that's a very uh, significant relationship. And uh, the, the history, uh, you know, 200 years ago, is that somebody would design the bicycle, then they'd work out how to build the bicycle, then they'd work out how to fix a bicycle when it broke, a, you know, a, a sequential approach. But that narrow stovepipe approach led to bad decisions, many of which had to be undone, which is rework with adding time and money, some which couldn't be undone, which, which meant that they acted as unwelcoming constraints, which meant, again, uh, a loss of opportunity to save time and money and compromise of product quality. So concurrent injuring is, is the antithesis of that. It's the concurrent collaborative and balanced development of such systems. So car, car production system. I mean, surely, you know, in my experience that I've, that I've found is that people think that you can, you can start with detailed design without, for example, having a firmed up architecture type of situation. And in my, what I found was that it, it is very frustrating to, to, because you end up doing stuff over. Exactly. You do the detailed yeah. design and then uh, you realize that the architecture was wrong to so now you need to, to redo the detailed design. And I just found that people say, yes, but you can do it because you can do concurrent engineering. So it must be. Yeah. Exactly the same experience. People think you can jump forward. If you talk about concurrent engineering, before you actually done the architecture, you could, we know we needed that thing. So we know more or less what it's going to be. Let's go and do it. That's concurrent engineering. And that's not what you're saying, is it? Oh, no, that's, that's, I mean, we're talking about two distinctly different things here, both of them very important points. Doing detailed design on flimsy architecture, uh, it creates exactly what we've just heard, the likelihood that we're going to have to re-architect. And when we re-architect, it puts a risk all the detailed work that, that has been done. Uh, a, rough, a ballpark figure for the amount of work in producing an architecture versus detailing that architecture is about somewhere in the region of 20 to 25% versus 80 to, uh, 80 to 75% of, of work. So if we have to redo, redo the detail because we've got the architecture wrong, the amount of work that we're putting at risk is very high indeed. And, and that's the history. So 
not, neither the stovepipe development of a, 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 an engine its production system uh, is recommended, nor is doing a lot of commitment to detail design on a flimsy architecture either recommended, even though they're different issues. John? You're shutting me up if you if, if I'm asking too many questions, but so it's got nothing to do with agile system engineering if such a thing exists. Uh, no, there's not really any relationship there. I mean, agile has certain practices. Uh, the word, of course, agile means an ability to respond rapidly. And if, if there could be a need to respond rapidly, then agile, by definition, has to be good. But, of course, agile, as applied to initially software engineering and then agile project manager, agile systems engineering, is more than that. And what is reflected in the, the foundations of agile development and how Agile is actually interpreted and implemented are somewhat different. Uh, you do not find in the foundations of uh, Agile software development, the Agile Manifesto, any explicit statement of not worrying about the problem and just jumping in and coding. Uh, on the other hand, you see in most implementations of Agile uh, a, let's jump in and do the fun stuff and designing and coding, not worrying too much about what the problem is, just expose code uh, to learn, learn about the problem. But that was not in the Agile Manifesto. It, it's been an interpretation, I think, probably influenced more than anything else by, um, what's the right term? <laughs> uh, uh, ego is not the right term, uh, but, but sort of self-satisfaction of, of being creative, not an outcome basis. Now, there's a very good study by Capers-Jones looking at the performance of different styles of software development, of which Agile is one of 13 that he looked at. And what you find is... Uh, he looked at four measures. Let me just go back a little bit. He looked at four measures. Initial development cost, where Agile was pretty close to the uh, lowest, so it looked, at, looked pretty good on initial development cost. Initial development time frame, same story, um, at or close to the fastest, uh, but in software product quality, it was below the, the median uh, and pretty poor. You know, I'm talking about many, many tens of percent greater defects, you know, number of defects uh, than the leader, uh, and also in uh, cost of ownership over five years. Now, five years was chosen because that was the longest period of time for which there was sufficient quantity of, of good solid data to draw reliable conclusions, and uh, Agile was about the middle of the field and something like 35% more higher cost of ownership over five years uh, than the leader. Now, what was also significant is that there was a clear leader overall. And obviously, from what you're hearing, it wasn't Agile. It was TSP, Team Software Process, uh, developed by Watts Humphreys at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. And... Uh, that was almost identical to Agile. Uh, and when I say Agile, I'm talking about Scrum 2 Agile, actually. Uh, almost identical initial development cost, almost identical in initial development time frame. It was the clear leader over everything else in software product quality, and it was the clear leader over everything else in cost of ownership over five years. And... Interestingly, it has aspects of many styles of development, including Agile, but probably the single uh, most interesting feature of it is that almost half of the total development effort is spent on inspection-based verification activities, which is not exactly what programmers and, and software designers look forward to. <laughs> and, and again, I, I think it's reflecting the difference, the, the motivations leading to the take-up of Agile as opposed to the, the, the stark realities of project performance. So, uh, a long story, but, but maybe an important one. <coughs> 15 to 88, 2015 uh, still has its issues. Uh, I don't think any of them is fatal by any means. Probably the most worrying one remains this. It's no longer then a miracle curse process, but uh, this uh, area of transformation of, of 
outcomes being sought by humans in terms of capabilities and you know, cost limits and when and all, all the usual things um, into bits of solution, human and technology bits of solution. And that's still handled pretty poorly. It doesn't really reflect the recursive nature of the activity and it's simply application to an added enterprise or capability or what's sometimes called a mission system level or a business system level. But when you look at it, you find that the, the principles of doing that transformation are no different to the principles of designing a circuit card or anything else. What's different is the problem. What's different is what ends up being the solution. But in terms of the uh, types of information that we start with and that we work with and that we create, it's all the same. Uh, and that, is, that was very well represented in that standard that I mentioned uh, just near the introduction of EIA Interim Standard 632. It was quite well represented in its successor, EIA 632, and quite well represented in the standard IEEE 1220, which had many issues, but that wasn't one of them. But uh, that totally disappeared in 15288-2008, and it hasn't really reappeared in a, in a very effective way in the 2015 standard. That, that's probably the only seriously worrying thing uh, about the uh, 2015 standard. There's still this muddling of the uh, distinction between taking out the soldering iron and doing a maintenance action versus deciding how to maintain something, or pouring the concrete versus deciding how to pour the concrete, a, con a production system, but in that that's not accompanied by an absence of concurrent engineering, it's much more an annoyance than it is a serious problem. It, it just is really weird, but it doesn't do any great damage. There is still this absence of a, a system lifecycle management uh, process element. Uh, again, that's not of huge consequence because people, I mean, people know they have to do it. They do it anyway. You can't not do it. Uh, and, and people are not stupid. So the fact that it isn't in that standard doesn't really do any great, you know, large amount of damage. Uh, two new issues that have appeared, uh, and uh, I'm going to go to the next diagram uh, in making this point, and that is that the new standard has a, a, a fairly strong bias in the direction of systems engineering being synonymous with application in a one-on-one -on -one customer contract to business model only. Uh, there's always a customer, there's always a contractor. Well, of course, that's not the case. There are three business models within which systems engineering is hugely applied. You see them represented graphically there. The detail there doesn't matter, but uh, perhaps the, the bold stuff uh, is what does matter, and that is that a lot of systems engineering is done and should be done and delivers value in internal projects where the customer is internal, the objective is to maximise the value that we deliver to our internal customer within a set of constraints. And that applies to production systems and training systems and any, just about any system you can name uh, can be engineered in circumstances where the customer is internal. The second business model is the one we've just been talking about, which is the, uh, if I may use the word over, the over-orientation of the new standard. Uh, and then the third business model is just hugely um, widespread in application of systems engineering, but it is poorly accommodated in the new standard, uh, and that is the entrepreneurial development of products in anticipation of future sales uh, for a commercial market. And, and you see that in, you know, from anything from toothpicks uh, up, up to Airbus A380s and you know, Boeing Dreamliners and so on, uh, product orientation you know, of uh, business and development. So that's not a, not a welcome direction, I would suggest. Uh, and then the, uh, the other somewhat worrying uh, aspect of the evolution, as far as this standard goes, uh, is the picking up of a, a, a not insignificant amount of US Department of Defence uh, jargon uh, and concepts that really haven't helped them and uh, haven't helped anybody else, if I may say so. Uh, so that's a bit, un a bit unfortunate also. But n with the exception of the first item, none of those is a showstopper. They're, they're, they're all 
you know, sort of second level down of concerns, or maybe of the third level down. So when you when you stack up the good against the bad, it, it's a pretty clear the good is much better than the bad. You know, and there's opportunity as inevitable happen, will happen, uh, because these things are on a five, you know, supposedly five year cycle. So it usually works out about six. So there'll be another standard in what 2021. And um, I'm, I'm confident that it will pick up some of these things, maybe all of these things, uh, and will be better than the current one. Uh, I think the trend line is pretty much established now. There have been some other changes, and uh, most of these are pretty good. Let's run, just run through them. Uh, we've talked about that one. That's not pretty good. Uh, and we've talked about that one. Uh, nothing positive or negative there. This is a very interesting one. This is a little bit peculiar. It's uh, pulled out the mathematical analysis of, of things in general and called it uh, a system, system analysis process. Now, if you do a search on definition and systems analysis, you'll get about 200 different definitions. And you, could, you do it. Yeah, just have a bit of fun and see what you come up with. And you'll find just a huge diversity of definitions. It's a term with so many diverse meanings that it's probably useless. Well, this has added new meaning, <laughs> which is uh, a little bit strange. And it's not obvious why you would want to pull it out as its own process. But anyway, it's there. It's not, again, it's not hugely problematic. Uh, next one is really weird as well. It uh, talks about I, V and V processes. But the I is not independent. The I is integration. So it's used a new acronym, uh, IVNV, where there's a well-established acronym, IVNV, and you can guarantee that's going to cause a lot of confusion. Uh, I think somebody had a, a bit of a brain fade. <laughs> and uh, that somehow got through. It's strange. Um, that's all good stuff. Uh, this last one is really good. Uh, the uh, a, a much greater orientation in the standard on supply chain uh, and uh, product line management, uh, and, and that for at least one of the you know, well a range of applications of systems engineering uh, is a welcome addition. John, well, I don't see on your slide, but maybe on your next slide, and maybe this is maybe it doesn't even belong in a standard. Is my question is. Uh, what I don't see there is anything about model-based engineering. Should there be anything about model-based engineering as a process? Uh, not as a process, uh, but integrated with all the process areas uh, is, and you should be model-based. Model-based you know, model is a tool. It's like mathematics-based. It's, it's, it's a tool, or word-based. They're, they're all things that sh should be integrated with just about every activity. So model-based if you should pull it out and make it something special, it makes it look like it's something special. It shouldn't be. It should be just integral to doing work and, and, and one of the tools of doing work. So the process elements are the work to be done uh, and then where model-based sits is, is, well, what role does modelling play in doing that work? Whether it's requirements analysis or planning or architecting or detailed design or anything. So uh, I would certainly not express a point of view that model model orientation or model-based engineering is neglected. Uh, it's just not put up in lights and, and pulled out in a way that, uh, to express an opinion, would not be productive. Robert, so there could be, there could be uh, a standard or some discourse on how word-based systems engineering supports these processes as mathematical-based systems engineering could and model-based systems engineering. But that's separate. That's a separate. That would be a separate uh, uh, document or uh, exploration, or even if it justifies it, a standard. Yeah. So yes, Daniel. Uh, well, Danny, I, I personally wouldn't advocate that, because uh, what what seems much more effective is in defining the process areas to simply talk about how to how to best go about doing that. Uh, as far as process standards are concerned, and where there are alternatives, then then state what the alternatives are, and if there are merits of pros and cons of different alternatives, 
then state the conditions under which you do this or that, word-based or doctrine-based uh, versus, versus model-based. Um, and if it's clearly you should be using models, then you say so, and if it's clearly you should be using words, then say so. And I think that's pretty much the strategy that's in the, in the 2015 standard. So, and I, personally, I'm totally comfortable with that. I think it's the way it needs to be. There are things that can be pulled out and sort of put in lights that take them out of context of, of, of everything else. Some st other important changes. Uh, knowledge management process. That's a, that's a, it, it, it's not a showstopper or a show starter, I should say, uh, but it's a very welcome addition. Uh, knowledge management is a, is a really important for organisations in, in maximising the value that they get from the um, knowledge that they create, and many an organisation uh, dissipates a lot of that value. So focusing on that as a, a process element is good. Uh, and then the next one I mentioned. Uh, mixed uh, feelings on the quality assurance process added. Uh, I personally like to see that with much more orientation towards V&V. &V. But on the other hand, there was an omission in the 2008 standard regarding uh, incident uh, or uh, problem reporting uh, and uh, response to problems, management of response to problems. So that's been corrected. So in that sense, at least that important uh, deficiency in the 2008 version of the standard has been uh, fixed, although I'm not especially... Uh, in, a, in, a, in love with the way it's been fixed. Uh, then the next one is an obvious uh, important addition or, or correction. <coughs> what I'd like to do now, and again subject to any questions along the way, is uh, just look at some of these major issues and uh, why, they are why they were major issues with the uh, 2008 edition and uh, why the fixes in the 2015 edition are so important. Starting with uh, then uh, a mirror curves process. Starting with stakeholders who have needs and defining the things that we're going to create or acquire in some way and integrate to result in outcomes is just problem solving. And in terms of the principles of doing it, and the tools that support us doing it, it's like any other problem solving. There's, there's probably only one significant distinction, and that is that there is no concept of concurrent engineering at an enterprise or business system level. Enabling systems, maintenance systems, production systems and so on are part of the solution. Whereas below that level, uh, for, for say, the example here is, this is a, a military example, uh, but the example here of an armed transport aircraft, uh, it has a production, needs a production system, it needs a maintenance system, and so on. Uh, but they're all a part of the solution to achieving these uh, outcomes at, at an enterprise level. Now, unlike uh, the predecessor and the, the, to a lesser degree the current standard, uh, you have basic uh, types of activities, such as architecting, having initially defined well enough the problem. So that gives you, well, let, let's turn, turn it around. It gives you a starting point of uh, requirements capture and validation, producing a statement of the problem uh, in a level of detail and with content that if that problem is solved, as defined, then the need will be solved uh, with a low level of risk. And it's no different up there to it is down in the depths of detail of some circuit card or brake pad or something. The, type of information, the reason for doing it are the same. Just the stakes are higher up the top there. Then in the middle here, which is where the biggest problem is with the uh, replacement standard, uh, is that it, there just isn't recognition of the applica simple application of uh, architecting, model-based or otherwise, in detailed design, model-based or otherwise, uh, to solving the defined problem. And that, uh, I believe that what will happen uh, certainly what needs to happen, but I'm confident it will happen, is that the processes of architectural and detailed design, uh, of trade-off studies, uh, of specification system elements, which are well represented uh, for application at lower physical levels, will simply be invoked uh, for application at this level here. Uh, 
and uh, that will be a step forward. It's uh, whether you're engineering military capability or providing transportation for the city of Cape Town, it's all about problem solving. And the principles of problem solving are the principles of problem solving, not something different. Now, in terms of the work, this diagram is illustrating the, the major activities that are not, uh, unfortunately, in the current standard uh, well reflected of requirements, capture and validation, the same sort of thing, whether we're talking about a, an enterprise system or a brake pad, uh, and physical logical design with relationships between them. Uh, that's the sort of stuff I'm talking about. Next one, um, which is a big improvement and totally fixed, uh, is uh, what I refer to as architecture being a level of abstraction of design, not uh, a physical level of design. 2008, 2008 said if we're architecting an air traffic control system, oh, sorry, if we're uh, designing an air traffic control system, we're doing architectural design, but if we're designing a, a tower or a power supply or something, we're not. Uh, we're doing detailed design. Now that sort of mindset was around about 40 years ago and it proved to be not very useful. And of course in industry, that's long since disappeared. Uh, so any given object that is subject to design, if it's a system, then that design is ultimately expressed in terms of the identification of the elements of solution and the key characteristics as a minimum for architecture and the implemental level of detail characteristics uh, for detail design of the same object. And for a circuit board, the key parts and the key characteristics but for detailed design of a circuit board, you know, the value of intolerance and the interfaces of every resistor and every chip and every capacitor and so on. Implement a little detail. But the, but the same object, same physical level of design. And uh, that's represented here, uh, architectural design, detailed design. Uh, and then we can take a structural view of that or we can take the view of the logic behind the structure, which is, which is what Danny was referring to. A model-based is on the left-hand side here and that's supporting getting it right on the right-hand side. Now that's all in the new 15288, that's all very well dealt with and uh, very sound stuff. So the, um, oh, the sorry, let me, just go, one, let me just go back. In other words, logical view of the detailed design. Uh, the one down the bottom there yeah. is logical view of the detailed design. The one up here is logical view at a conceptual level of detail of the logic matching conceptual level of detail of the structural view. Okay. So level of detail, conceptual, implementable detail, two different views of types of information however, how to build it, which is that view, and the, the logic of how to build it, which is basically how it works, uh, is, is that view. And model-based design that uh, Danny was talking about earlier uh, is the logic uh, of how to build it, and if it's architecture, conceptually, or it may be implementable detail. Now down here, you tend uh, to be justified in formalising that generally only for really critical things, you know, like train control systems or radiation-based medical products, or, or, yeah, yeah, exactly, safety critical or, or you know, some other reason really critical get it wrong, we're in, in dire straits. Uh, because there's a, an explosion of work in formalising the logic at the corresponding level of detail to the implementable level of detail over here. So not everything in systems end, you only, you only do because it adds more value than it, than it costs. So if it costs more than the value it adds, you don't do it. And for most routine engineering, that's going to be the case down here, but it's often going to be valuable up here uh, and the more higher value or more critical it is in some other way, the more likely it is to be a value up there and eventually for really critical it becomes valuable down there as well. Danny and then John. So the value of the, of, of, of the architectural design is to ensure that you can select the most appropriate detailed options for implementation to address the problem or the need. So 
That's true, but only to a point, because it's not only a matter of selection of detail options, it's a matter of getting the detail right. You know, whatever level of detail we're working at, getting it right. You, you expect when you develop a logic to do a lot of iteration to the, the physical side, uh, and if you don't, you're probably do wasting, wasting time and money. probably shouldn't be doing it. Because I often, I often encounter situations where the architectural space is traversed once, and then you do find a lot of rework in the detailed environment. Mm. Yeah, um, there, there are two aspects there. One is the concept of uh, divergent thinking and initial architecting, and, and that applies physically and logically, uh, where we're looking to identify, well, let's, let's put it another way, uh, eliminate anything that can't work, eliminate anything that can't be best, then pick the best of what's left. And, and, and for all the detail of how we go about doing that, that's the, the, what we're trying to achieve. And uh, logical design plays a role uh, in defining uh, solution alternatives, although you find in practice that the vast majority of formal evaluation of alternatives occurs on the physical side. There are certainly exceptions. Uh, for some things, for example, signal involving a lot of signal processing, alternative algorithms may be evaluated over here, which is purely on the logical side. But, but that's not so common. Where would the software, sorry for the queue, which corner would software, the actual code that you implement? Yeah, that's down there. Uh, and it, yeah, it's not physical, but this is not physical in terms of atoms and molecules necessarily. It's physical in the sense of being structural. So lines of code are, lines of, are elements of structure of software. Uh, units of code that are, that are coded uh, are, are elements of structure or software components. Uh, and classes are a further abstraction, but they are also uh, beneficial and, and appropriate also to regard classes as sitting on the right-hand side here. And then there's logic behind the classes and the association of services with classes and so on, and, and data with classes and so on. Uh, that's why systems engineering is so general in its application. It's no less applicable to engineering software or communications protocols. And people widely talk about physical design of databases. There are no atoms or molecules there, but, uh, but it's still a useful concept. So th that's the reason for the word structural sort of appearing over there. John? I think the question's answered. I, I would tend to replace the word physical with implementation because it covers hardware and software and firmware for that. Matter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can understand that point of view. You, you might convince me the next time you see that diagram, it might have implementation. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, you know, that, 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 that code, there's no, it just gets interpreted by a machine, but that happens, that, that interpretation is actually physical. It's just, it just happens on a lower level, maybe. But it, it's actually, it happens in the physical um, environment, yeah. reality. So you yeah. Yeah, but then, it, but then that's physical in a different sense to the sense here. The only reason I use the word physical here is because it, it's pretty widely used. But if there's a case for changing it, then I'm, I'm, you know, I've mounted many missionary campaigns to change things, and uh, that could be one of them in the future. Who knows? Sometimes successfully, sometimes not. <laughs> Maybe one last thing. I was just curious about the four or more <coughs> levels of abstraction comment that you had. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, very common. Um, let me give you an example. Uh, what's a good example? Um, Train-based for a ground transportation system. That's as abstract a statement of architecture as you could possibly make. Train-based. Uh, a parts list. These stations, these, these tracks, these trains, these quantities. A parts list. That's more detailed, but it's still very abstract. A network diagram, a schematic diagram, showing those elements, but showing the flows between them and how, how they uh, relate, to, how they are connected to one another. So uh, a schematic diagram, a class diagram, uh, or a uh, buy from Aldi, a, a build-it-yourself furniture kit. You know, you open the box, you get this diagram that comes out, uh, which shows all the bits and how they geometrically relate to one another. And that's, that's similarly, but for a purely mechanical system, 
that third level of abstraction. And then the fourth level of abstraction is a superimposition on the third level of the key characteristics of each of the elements and the concept of their interoperation in relation to the key characteristics required of the whole. And that's what you get uh, and what's defined in the public domain standards for describing architecture. Things like SSDDs, the old IEEE architectural uh, standard, the architectural frameworks, uh, all describe that sort of information in you know, somewhat different ways to some degrees, but that's the essence of the information described. But none of that is at an implementable level of detail, which is down there. So that's what those four are. Yes, sir? I see the term complexity in, in the sense that um, if you were to uh, give a detailed design, a lot of the or logical view of a detailed design, um, then there's this element, and I'm reading complexity, that uh, comes in terms of the people or the team that will ultimately implement that you may have to um, spend effort on defining at the detail level the logical requirements or, or design because your team is not as skilled, for example, and how much that um, mm, at this stage to yep. say, I actually have to do that because the, the expected team for implementation is, is at a particular level of skill. Yeah, abs absolutely. So what is simple for me, um, that's a bad example, what is simple for you, uh, may uh, not be simple for me, so you would not be justified in formalising logic where I would be for exactly the reason you describe. And so that's another motivator. Uh, it's sort of all a part of getting it right the first time, but it's reflecting the circumstance of trying to get it right the first time and doing it from a low knowledge and understanding base is that much more difficult, which means formalising the logic is more valuable. Moving on, uh, the, uh, just, just to summarise this issue of architecture being a level of abstraction, not a physical level. So what we're seeing is uh, the same sorts of activities with levels of abstraction of design in the middle there, but applied to different things. Right up here at an enterprise level for an overall, say, city transportation uh, system, uh, which has all sorts of things in it, huge numbers of people and bits of technology, down to things that are purely technology or purely organisational, or a mixture of the two, you know, down the bottom and lower, lower again. VNV. I sort of deferred a little bit uh, to uh, going into more detail of that, but uh, the basic message there is don't limit VNV to just in-system VNV. Now, what 15288-2008 did was limit uh, verification to only system verification, meaning no verification requirements work products. Verification is the thing correct. No, ver no design verification. Can you believe that? No design verification. Just hope that somehow it's right. Well, that's almost suicidal, particularly for anything even a little bit complex. It's, it's incredibly suicidal. Uh, no subsystem verification, at least technically. If, if you read the words, you, you can certainly interpret them that way. Interpret them that way. Uh, and then just test the system at the end. It's a, it's a, that 2008 standard was a 40-year regression of the old days of testing and quality. Well, I mean, the world has moved on a heck of a lot since then, and uh, the concept of building quality for everything you do and doing stuff early and getting it right early to avoid all the problems of fixing later down the track is, is just a way of life in most sectors and mo most companies, but <laughs> not in uh, the 2008 standard. So what you're seeing on that diagram, and we don't need to go into the detail of it, but suffice to say we have verification there of requirements work products. And since we have requirements on different things at different physical levels, we have a lot of those. And we have verification design work products, which you see there and there and there, because again, we have a lot of designs of things with a problem-solution relationship, and then lower-level problem-solution relationships, different physical levels. Verification of actual subsystems against requirements on those, there and there. Verification of a product as to whether it's built in accordance with this design description. If it isn't, we can't replicate it. If it breaks, we can't fix it. If it gets smashed up, we can't restore it. 
We can't reuse a design because we don't have a, a, an accurate representation of what its design is. All sorts of downstream things are compromised if that relationship is, is not, uh, not a matching relationship, product and design description. So that's a, a different... It's verification, for sure, uh, but uh, it's verifying correspondence of the product with its design description. Uh, and then we see more of those. Now, the blue lines are the same sort of story, but regarding validation. So here we're seeing validation of requirements by recipients of requirements. Do the requirements correspond to need? And that, that's the need of the organisation that is to do the supply or development of the thing. Uh, methods of system requirements analysis primarily for achieving that. We see some blue arrows on the left-hand side, validation of design work products. Now, if we had perfect requirements validation and perfect design verification, there would be no possibility of a verified design to validate requirements not corresponding to need. Neither of those will ever be the case. Never in the history of mankind has it ever been the case, nor will it be. So the possibility always exists. So that's why design validation is, is so important. That's why you invite stakeholders to design reviews or have on-site stakeholder representation for more important, act, uh, more important developments. Uh, it's why you expose interfaces to stakeholders in, in the interfaces and so on. And uh, over on the right-hand side here, we have subsystem validation, typically by trialling, or just exposing it to the team leader of the uh, higher-level system. Uh, and we see here with the diagonals using uh, product-in-the-loop simulation uh, as a, uh, another technique of, of uh, subsystem validation, or up here in system validation, which is that, that one up there. I had a guy on a, a course uh, in the US who owned a 200-person hardware-the-loop simulation facility. Uh, it was actually for an aircraft, and this aircraft, the thing was ground-based, but the whole facility simulated... Uh, it had a lot of real stuff. <laughs> the aircraft was tied down. It was air, real, real air and real fuel and stuff. Uh, but the uh, electromagnetic environments, the, the aspects of the threat environments, uh, the uh, natural environmental environments, pressure and temperature and that sort of stuff, were all simulated. Uh, it's the biggest hardwood loop simulation I've ever come across. So that was one of those. That was at, uh, literally at that level there. Now, all of that... Uh, except, uh, let's say our system is the aircraft, because this, this is excluded from the engineering in 2008 standard. So let's say our system of interest with the aircraft. All of that is excluded except that one there uh, and that one there uh, in the 2008 standard. Now, that, of course, is not appropriate. <laughs> Not necessarily on the point you were trying to make. I, in fact, completely on the tangent. Mm -hmm. If you look at the work and the effort <coughs> in, in, in the approach, is the integration and then testing side, um, if you compare the time and effort with regards to the, the analysis and detail development on the left, how does the time compared generally for technology development Yeah. Uh, it's very difficult to generalise because there's a lot of, a lot of variation. Uh, and also, of course, it's very strongly influenced by whether you know, 10 ships are being built or one ship is being built. But in ballpark terms for a system, let's say an air traffic control system, you're generally looking at about... And, and to do it... To do things in a reasonably efficient way, getting things right most of the time, you're generally looking at about uh, 15 plus or minus 5% on the left-hand side, the balance on the right-hand side. Uh, but having said that, it's, it's a bit like the relationship of investment cost to life cycle cost. Having said that, there's a huge variation in those numbers. An enabling system is a system to be engineered like any other system. Uh, that's uh, also a, uh, a victim of the 2008 standard, 
but it's not a victim of the year 2015. It's also very clear in the 2015 standard, even though there's, there's that muddling up of things, but it's uh, still a big improvement. Uh, here we have a, 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 an aircraft. Here we have an aircraft maintenance system. And they're just systems. Now, if we're logistics support analysis and analysts, then that's our game. Our game is engineering support systems. Or if we're a production systems engineer, our game is engineering production systems. But in terms of the principles and the tools of engineering, they're just systems like any other system, subject to all the principles, all the methods of, of engineering them. This uh, slide I referred to earlier when we talked about concurrent engineering, and it's just uh, a little bit of a, f a formal definition of, of the nature of it. So it, it's much more than just doing engineering concurrently. The essence of it is this uh, system of interest and one or more enabling systems. Now, when you look at the definitions, when you look at the examples of enabling systems, what comes out of that is that the internal solutions to a system of interest and an enabling system have to be matched. You can't just... Well, take, for example, from the, an earlier diagram. You couldn't define the requirements on the aircraft and the requirements on the aircraft maintenance system mutually consistent, but then go and develop those systems independently. You just can't do it. It's just not possible to do that. So you could do it sequentially, and I described that with the bicycle, but that is so inefficient, with so much rework, bad decisions along the way, and so that leaves this. That's what it's all about. And uh, thankfully well represented in the 2015 standard. Um, we've covered that, that hasn't been fixed, um, but that one certainly has. If anybody has an interest, uh, I've produced a, a very detailed uh, application guide on uh, the new standard. Uh, as you see, it's about 25 pages. Uh, but it, 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 I, I believe, I certainly hope, uh, for anybody who uh, had an interest in that standard and uh, might be motivated to use it, I would certainly encourage that. that. Uh, then uh, I hope that it could be of use to you. So if anybody would like a copy of that, then uh, you're most welcome. Uh, it can be downloaded there or uh, with a lot of other downloads uh, available or, or that uh, one there. Or if you just would like to drop me an email, I'd be happy to send you a copy of it. Uh, to give an illustration of what's in that, just an introduction, uh, but I, I think... Is that readable at the back? Oh, pretty marginal. <laughs> in any event, that's the sort of stuff that's in it. So, so it's it's quite detailed. In closing, what I would like to see happen, and have some degree of confidence that something along these lines will happen, uh, is the current mission and business analysis process to be basically re-engineered, uh, probably kept with some name like that, uh, but simply to invoke the basic process elements that are involved in doing that work, uh, which are the same as injuring anything else. Uh, and you see them listed there in the terms uh, that are, are used in the standard. Uh, and then uh, there's a problem area that's related regarding uh, stakeholder needs and requirements definition and system requirements definition processes. They, there is absolutely no reason for them to be somehow separate processes. They have exactly the same objectives, the same tools for doing them. It's just a different subject of application, different system on which they're done, but uh, exactly the same tools and methods. So uh, it would make a lot of sense to, to combine them, and we'll see if that happens. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, that's pretty much what I had in mind for the uh, formal presentation, but uh, happy to just we discuss anything that's in any way related. Um, the uh, SEM book, uh, version 4, yes. um, has been developed in, I don't know what the right word is, in conjunction with 1528. Yes, exactly. Um, how do you, in your opinion, how does that, uh, as a reference, uh, if you were not to read 1528, is the system engineering handbook version 4 sufficient? Yes, it, it's, it's, uh, it's overall pretty good. Uh, and that's the first system engineering handbook where one, I think, could reasonably say that. It, it's, uh, it, it, 
it's an enormous improvement on its predecessor and it's very good. <coughs> Can you maybe just, just for interest's sake, the, the, the background of the 5288, who were the sort of driving forces and the parties that, that formulated this new the, the new one or the, the new one or the, the new one? But also maybe to add on to that, sorry, but yeah, why, no, go ahead. why was it that, you know, that they, there was a significant change between the Mosland and the 5288? Look, I, I would only be prepared to discuss that but with turning the recording <laughs> off. Look, I'm serious. <laughs> no, it's a lot more sinister than that. Uh, but I, but I, I, can't, I can't respond to that with the recording. I'm, I'm serious, I can't. Uh, I'm happy to respond, but not with, not with this on. Uh, as far as the uh, the new one, uh, basically a new set of players, uh, with the evolution of time, uh, national bodies, you know, national body representatives changing, and of course, I mean, you know, people are not stupid. Common sense eventually prevails, uh, and uh, it's done. It's done that, and uh, had a very good team leader, uh, who, who you know, leadership plays a big role in how successful the standards are, and uh, very good team leader. Uh, and a uh, much higher quality of team membership, and without the reasons that I won't talk about with this on, uh, uh, causing the ISO process to be uh, subverted, if you put it that way. So it worked the way it was supposed to work for the new standard. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I, yeah, I, I can't comment on that with any authority or any sound base of opinion. Uh, what I will say is that any standard to be a good standard has to emphasise the conditions under which you do things and the conditions under which you don't do things and make very clear that you only do things when they add value, which means that, that the tailoring should be pretty much inherent in the standard not something they're not a do everything standard that you then cut bits out of. Ladies and gentlemen. It's very informative and uh, I really appreciate that you gave this talk to us. Uh, <laughs> thanks very much, guys. <laughs> Thank you very much.